I woke up like really shaking one morning at like four in the morning. And when I, and I know anyone out there who's caregiving knows the feeling, I was literally physically shaking like I was freezing. Yeah. And I, I just, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't take care of my parents. They were going to die. I was going to die. I mean, it was bad. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa. This is the fifth episode of our series on caregiving. The voice you heard a moment ago was Suzanne White, founder of Caregiver Warrior, a community and blog dedicated to connecting caregivers with resources. Suzanne's story is one of three that you're going to hear today. Because even though they happened in very different circumstances and even on opposite sides of the globe, they highlight an experience that is all too common for caregivers. And that is burnout. Now, burnout can mean a lot of different things in different contexts, but in caregiving, it's a physical and emotional threshold, which when a person crosses, their health starts to decline. From the outside, it can look like stress or even it can look like nothing. As we're going to see, burnout takes a lot of different forms, and there can be any number of indicators that a person has hit this point. But internally, burnout operates like a disease with very real, sometimes life-threatening symptoms, which self-care is not enough to prevent or fix, and which takes a combination of time and outside help to overcome. Because of this, I'm going to address this episode to people who aren't caregivers right now or who aren't burning out because those are the people best equipped to do something about it. And if you're listening to this and thinking, wow, this is me, I hope you'll share this with someone in your life so they'll know what to look for and how to support you. So as we get started, I want to introduce you to Mishka Sibert, an international speaker and life coach who founded Happy Autism with her autistic nonverbal brother, Samuel. As a sibling caregiver, Mishka had the experience of being a glass child, which she's going to explain. I'm a sibling caregiver since I was maybe nine years old-ish, without knowing that I was one. I have a brother who's younger, nine years old or younger than me. His name is Samuel, but we call him Samko because we're from both from uh, Slovakia. And he's super awesome. He's my best friend. He's autistic and he's nonverbal. So he's completely dependent on support and help from family and other people his whole life. Um, and yeah, and I was that invisible child or like we call, it's called glass child. The glass child is it's something that psychologists really came up with, which you kind of showcase it. Okay, glass child is a child that is a sibling of someone with a special needs because parents focus on that child that has disability and see through the needs of that child that doesn't have those disability or maybe it's not diagnosed yet. That happens also. So that other sibling, like me, is, you know, was like, it's a helper, it's the one that is there, it's supporting everyone's needs. It just knows that, you know, my needs are not so special, so I don't have any. So a glass child, like Mishka describes, is a sibling whose needs are eclipsed by those of the child receiving care. And as we're about to see, this kind of mindset can be dangerous. That's kind of the mindset we have. 
that was something that I was running on this program a bit unknowing about this for so many years. I'm 29 now and probably when I was around 25, I started having these big wake-up calls. I almost even lost my life because of this, because I was struggling to ask for help and doctors started neglecting me and not taking care of me. And I was like, oh my God, it's literally the mirror of who I, how I'm treating myself. So I had to really have like really hard wake-up calls, burnout, really big burnout, mental health problems, all this kind of stuff started falling apart for me to fall to the ground and, and get a slap in the face, be like, wake up, like, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you sacrificing yourself constantly for everyone? You don't have your own life, you're not living your own life. You're living life around your brother's needs and your family's needs. So basically our whole family, my mom and I were running around like the, the circle and we didn't even know we were stuck in it, in a cycle. I call it the sacrifice cycle. And it's really, it was really hard to be aware of this. But then when I burned out and I had those experiences, health problems, my mom started burning out and we realized, oh, wait, wait a second. We are, we're doing something wrong. What's happening? Why my brother is so happy and we are literally so tired. We feel like we don't have any a life energy at all, and it's affecting our health. At the point that Mishka burned out, her physical and mental health were failing, and she felt exhausted all the time. Fatigue is one of the classic flags of burnout, not just being tired, but an ongoing chronic fatigue. I also want to point out what Mishka mentioned, that once she had burned out, her mom began to as well, which is something we're going to come back to. In the meantime, fatigue as a key element of burnout was also described to me by Tipa Snow, an occupational therapist with a unique perspective on burnout. So my name is Tipa Snow, and I am the owner and lead trainer consultant of Positive Approach to Care. And my background is I'm an occupational therapist, and I have been in practice about 44 years. Having worked with countless caregivers, Tipa described how she identifies someone in this burnout state and has some very specific examples of changes in a person's demeanor that can indicate this extreme condition. For some people, it can look like fatigue. I'm exhausted all the time. I'm tired. I just look tired. I sound tired. I sound, oh, what do you, so what do you want? So I sound really tired. For some people, it sounds angry. I sound angry when I'm when I'm interacting. Sit down, what are you doing? I told you. And so you start hearing in my voice, your mother's voice on a bad day. You'll notice that while fatigue is at the top of the list for identifying burnout, anger comes right after it. Burnout is so intense that it can actually alter the personalities of those experiencing it, causing irritability and what comes across as less patience, even though it stems from a physiological root cause. The other indicators can be overwhelming sadness. For some people, it sounds tearful. I don't know what to do. I, I've asked him and asked him and I've and he won't take a shower. Burnout can feel claustrophobic. Some folks will describe it as feeling trapped. And so people say, I'm trapped. I mean, I can't even, I can't even take five minutes away. I mean, I, 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 I tried, I can't do this, I can't do that. So there's a sense of trapped. 
And burnout can include the extreme loneliness that we talked about in episode three. And other people describe themselves as abandoned. Like no one else, this is it. I'm the only one. Nobody comes by, nobody does anything. My brother, my sister, nobody steps up. So we start feeling that sense of isolation and described it as being abandoned by everyone. And even with all these different factors, as burnout settles in, it begins to look a lot like anxiety and depression. And then some people start to get scared. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I, I, this is getting so hard. I just, I, I don't know what to do with him. I, I, it's, it's too much. It's, I, and so this fearful sort of like, I can't, I can't, I have to sleep in front of the door. I'm afraid he'll get out. And so the anxiety and the, and the fear are really strong. And some people say, I don't even know if what I'm doing is making a difference. So I lose my sense of purpose and value. And all of those are signals of burnout. I mean, they're all signals of being at that place where my care is starting to suffer because I'm just, I'm burned out. Tipa's description of these indicators makes it a lot easier to identify the progression of burnout in other people. With that in mind, I want you to hear Suzanne White's story. We heard her for a moment at the beginning of the episode, and now we're going to get to the full story. My caregiving journey began when I started taking care of my parents. My dad was a World War II vet. My mom was a little Irish Catholic powerhouse. And we would all meet at family holidays. And I had to take my World War II bombardier pilot dad off a plane in a wheelchair because he was so exhausted. And what what he didn't realize, because they were kind of hiding it Mm -hmm. from us very well, that my mom was showing signs of dementia. So he had caregiver burnout. And then he also had some heart issues. So I sort of jumped in immediately as the one caregiver usually in the family does. You know, there's one that always kind of shows up because I think we're hardwired to be caregivers. And my journey began taking care of them. And and then subsequently, I took care of other family members. I want to pause this for a moment to point out one of the similarities we've seen in both these stories. Suzanne's burnout hasn't happened yet, but it comes on the heels of her father burning out first. That was the first domino, and it didn't take long for Suzanne's health to follow suit. I was in New York, and my parents were in South Jersey, which is about a 90-mile drive, and I was working full-time, and I was sort of going back and forth, and I was miserable. I was exhausted, and I was resentful, Mm -hmm. and I was guilty, you Mm -hmm. know, about my job and about my parents, and and I I was such a hot mess. And at this point, Suzanne gives a description of burnout that I love, a vivid image of how it feels to hit that point. And she says something very revealing about our ability to control burnout. Yeah, and that's the burnout wall, you know, that's the caregiver burnout. And, and you know, I, a lot of my, you know, the advocates that I am friends with, and we have this kind of community now, you know, we talk a lot that, you know, you're going to have caregiver burnout. You can't avoid caregiver burnout. It, I mean, think about what you're doing. You know, you're responsible for someone else's life. You're a type A personality, probably. You're a perfectionist. You want it. You want to fix them. You want to make everything better. You're you're turning yourself inside out to serve other people. You know, you're you're going to be bankrupt emotionally at some point or another. So you can't avoid the burnout. My thing is, do you want to hit the wall of burnout at 150 miles per hour? Or do you want to hit it at 10 miles per hour? 
that's where the control comes in or when I say control because we can't control anything but what we think we can but we can't that's where the self-care comes in that if you know we're in better shape and we're caring for our heart and our soul we might not hit that wall at 150 we might hit it maybe 25 miles per hour this is such a critical point that I have to touch on here we don't get to choose whether we hit the wall the wall's there, but there might be things we can do to soften that blow. And here's where I have to give a disclaimer. All of the stories in this episode, Mishka's, Suzanne's, and Rachel's, who you haven't heard yet, they all have some kind of happy ending because burnout is temporary. And you're going to hear each of them describe what worked for them to cope with burnout. But it's important to remember that burnout isn't the result of poor self-care. It's the result of extreme circumstances. I had too many people look me in the eye and say, make sure you're taking care of you like that's the all-encompassing solution and preventative factor. I know it's not. I'm leaving that in here, though, because I do think it's valuable. And these stories give me a lot of hope. Suzanne's going to describe how she coped at that darkest moment. I was just so so drained and I was miserable. And you know, my mom and I did not get along really well. So she was giving me a really hard time. And I I thought to myself, you know, okay, look, you got to do something. I mean, you know, you, you know, you can't just have this tape in your head of how awful your life is and how frightened you are for them and how scared you are for you. Mm-hmm. You just can't, you've had to do something. And for Suzanne, that something was giving a name to what she was feeling, finding little moments to pause and check in with herself. But I really forced myself to say, take your your emotional temperature at least once a day. Mm -hmm. Like stop at least once a day, go, oh my gosh, my shoulders up by my ears. Like Mm -hmm. what's, like, where am I, you know? And I wouldn't do it every day. It It took me a while to even get there to take, my emotional temperature and to be more self-aware. But I, I had no choice. Like I couldn't, if I didn't start to turn inward and see how I was feeling and I was acting, my mom was never going to change. She had early signs of dementia. Yeah. My dad wasn't going to change. You know, he was her main caregiver in the beginning. You know, they weren't going to change. People don't change. You have to change. You know, I know that because I'm, I'm, I'm in recovery and I, I understand that I've learned in my life that I would love to change just about everybody around me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just but tweak everyone. Happening. Just a little. Come it's, on. <laughs> it's not happening. You know, so I'm the only one that could change. So I made a very slow but sure attempt to figure out what was going on with me. Mm. And not just, you know, do they have to go to the emergency room when they get there? Mm. You know, what's my, you know, what's my mom doing? How bad is, you know, like all the things that I had to pay attention to were extraordinarily important. But how was I feeling about them like at the end of the day? Taking your emotional temperature checking in with yourself to see how you're feeling. One of the things that stands out to me about what Suzanne is sharing is how it gives a name to some of the experience. It really is a mindfulness exercise. And while mindfulness itself doesn't address the problem at hand, it can go a long way to being able to cope with it short term. It can also bring into focus those unmet needs that can erode the health and well-being of caregivers, needs which caregivers struggle to identify because they're so used to being the needed. 
Suzanne illustrates how as the demands of caregiving increase, but the support and resources for caregivers don't increase with them, we can find ourselves very suddenly in a burnout emergency. I could do it all, hey, I could do it all myself, I could do it perfectly, <laughs> and I could do it all at once. Yeah. That's what I went into it with, Yeah, as the true perfectionist that I am. None of which is true. We can't, guys, you, you, we can't. First of all, caregiving takes a village, yeah. right? I mean, for various reasons, just to begin with, forget the fact that you're going to hit the wall and have, you know, a little bit and, and have to go, oh my gosh, you need to help me. You know, I thought I was going to do it all myself, and you can't. So during this time where I was really starting to get burned out, I, I woke up like really shaking one morning at like four in the morning. And when I and I know anyone out there who's caregiving knows the feeling, I was literally physically shaking like I was freezing. Yeah. And I, I just, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't take care of my parents. They were going to die. I was going to die. I mean, it was bad. Yeah. And I picked the phone up. I picked the phone up and I dialed somebody who I knew was taking had taken care of her father who had dementia. And that conversation, which was a shock because she told me, you know, are they okay right now? Yes. Did you do all the pills for the week? Yes. Are they, you know, are they safe and warm? And okay? Yes. Is your dad okay? Yes. She goes, leave. Wow. I said, what? what? She said, get in the car yeah. and leave. Now, at this point in, in my journey with them, I was able to do that. Yeah. You know, she said, go tell them, go tell your dad, you know, you're really exhausted or you got something. You just got a phone call from work. You got to go. Could you get, could you go a little earlier and get out of there right now? I said, okay. And I trusted this, you know, I trusted this advice. So yeah, you trusted this person. I trusted this person. And then you have to have people you trust around mm -hmm. you. So I went in and I said, hey, guys, you know, um, you know, I said, if they got up and I got the breakfast and everything was done. And I said, hey, guys, would you mind if I leave a little early today? And I went, oh, my mom said, oh, oh, yeah, please leave early. You know, I worry about when you drive so late. Yeah. Get on the road, please. I said, OK. I hit like exit four on the turnpike and I just started crying because I felt so much better. Wow. So, but that was advice for somebody, you know, who used to like drive back and forth to take care of her dad. And she would scream in the car back and forth, you know, because it would make her feel better. She knew. She knew where I was at. She knew where I was at in, in my journey with them. And she said something to me that was, I would have never thought to do. When I was interviewing Suzanne and she was talking about that 4 a.m. moment, waking up freezing cold, I had forgotten about this, but it used to happen to me all of the time. And it's those details that when you're experiencing them for the first time, there's no one really to share them with and you don't know how to express it. You just think, am I going crazy? But that feeling is so vivid because you feel it in your body and then in your mind. You feel like you're losing it and that your heart is going to go out, that it's beating so fast or irregularly, but you just have to keep going. Your body is failing, maybe, but you'll worry about that later. Well, Suzanne said the same thing. And all of this is happening because of the extreme stress forcing your brain into fight or flight mode. I want to point out how important the intervention of someone outside the situation was to Suzanne. 
In that kind of personal crisis, it's impossible to think clearly. You're just trying to survive. It took someone else analyzing the situation and giving Suzanne the opportunity to catch your breath that diffused this extreme state of mind for her. Last episode, we covered many different ways a person can provide help and even momentary relief for caregivers, and this is why it matters so much. Now I'd like to introduce you to Rach Wilson, a relationship coach for couples with autistic and special needs kids. She's a mother of four and has two children who are autistic, nonverbal, with diet limitations and sensory challenges. The Wilsons experienced burnout as a family, and I want you to hear their story. While this is a hopeful story, I do want to mention that there are some mentions of suicidal ideation that some listeners may want to be aware of. Here's Rach Wilson. It started when Jackson was about, um, it was just after Corey was born. We'd gotten through newborn oblivion, so now we were getting to the point where we were starting to sleep again. And Jackson has had times where, you know, it'll last three, six months or two months where he would wake up in the night and just be screaming in absolute agony, like tummy pain. Rach described how they desperately did everything to alleviate the terrible pain which kept Jackson up all night, changing his diet and booking doctor's appointments. But the only thing that could soothe him was driving in their car. We would take it in shifts. Kerry would start the first not part of the night because Jackson would wake up anywhere between 8 and midnight with his first round of pains. So Kerry would do the first shift. And the rule was when the second coffee gives out, you have to tap the other person in. So McDonald's did a killing out of us because <laughs> there was at least two, four coffees a night. So we did this every night for 12 months. We did 100,000 kilometres going nowhere. As the Wilsons experienced this compounding, grueling fatigue, another child began to struggle as well. And at the same time as we were going through that with Jack's at night time, Corey's rages started. So she would start to go into a meltdown and then she would go into these horrific rages. She would try to hurt herself, she would try to hurt me. I ended up with bite marks, scratches, bruises, just trying to stop her from hurting herself and then stopping her from destroying, like pulling the curtains down, throwing things, like banging her head on stuff. And it would take me anywhere between 45 minutes and two hours to get through a rage. And at that time she was having three to four of them a day. So if I wasn't driving our son around, even during the day when he was, he would go into a meltdown because he was in pain again, I would be underneath her trying to get her through to the other side of the rage. And that was literally my life for nearly 12 months. As you can imagine, the extreme physical and psychological impact of this situation took its toll on Rach and pushed her body into crisis. And in that time, my body was getting further and further into burnout. So some of the things that happened were, and I still have it today, not as bad, anywhere near as badly, but where you lose words. So it's usually nouns. It's called a nominal aphasia. There's actually a term for it. I never knew. Uh, where the word doesn't appear in your head. Like you can see a picture of it, you know what it is, you know you know what it is, but you can't tell people what it is because the word doesn't exist in your brain. Rach began to notice that this inability to find words she was picturing was growing and getting worse, and she was losing her ability to communicate altogether. As you get further into the burnout, sentences disappear. If you get further in, you lose all ability to speak. No words come into your brain to even come out your mouth. It just doesn't happen. And then the stage after that is you lose the ability to understand what people are saying to you. So there were many times I'd be standing in the kitchen come three or four o'clock in the afternoon, tears streaming down my face because I can't words. 
At the same time, the toll on Rach's nervous system was showing up in the form of intrusive thoughts and dissociation. I was also having, I ended up seeing an integrated natural therapist because I'd be driving and I would see myself in my brain drive off to the side of the road or drive into a tree or I didn't have any sort of suicidal ideology, but I did have these images in my head that I wasn't intending to take myself out, but it was a dissociative episode is what they call it. I was worried about, you know, what happened if my brain decided to just to take action. Yeah, that was a concern. Rach looked for medical help, realizing the risk to herself and her family from the health challenges she was facing. They did all the blood tests and they basically said, your body is so far into burnout. It's like it's a massive concern. They put me on huge amounts of supplements and even they said this isn't going to fix the problem because the problem is that you're not getting enough sleep and you're you're under physical massive amounts of physical load so the answer won't be until you can actually sleep but at least with the supplements we can at least keep you going so that you don't get worse Uh, and that's what I had to do. And while Rach began the slow process of recovering her health, she became aware of how the burnout both she and her husband were experiencing was impacting their relationship. So it was a lot of frustration and hubby and I were just, it felt like we were alone, even though we were in the same house together. We were disconnected. We were so far into survival. We stopped thinking about each other. We stopped doing the little affection things. We stopped checking in on each other. So we, the conversation was, well, what little things can we do that'll help, you know, keep us feeling connected through this until we get to the end, hoping that there would be an end because at that point we didn't know. It was just Groundhog Day and we were both internally depressed by our existence um, and then just the, the distance between each other just made it, compounded it, made it worse. And in hindsight, Rach noticed that during the most intense part of burnout, that there was only so much they could do to combat it. Um, And it's been two years, two and a bit years since we got past the worst of it. And we're still, it's getting better and better each year. Uh, But there's only so much progress you can make on a burnout level when the demands are still quite high. But Rach also shared with me the system that they developed, which helps them share a language when it comes to each person's level of burnout. So we, we kind of operate with a traffic light system in our house. Like, you know, we're green, green is good. Green means I've got emotional capacity, mental capacity, physical capacity, doing all right, having a good day. Um, once we get into the orange section, then we're kind of starting to, to get loaded or overwhelmed or tired. As we saw in the other stories in this episode, burnout rarely affects one person. And when one caregiver burns out, the next supporting person is likely to follow, which is why I'm so impressed with the system that Rach and Carrie developed to check in with themselves and with each other, naming their experience and keeping each other from the brink of that fight or flight mode. Uh, We have a three number system in there so that we can tell where you're at. So orange one is like just in the orange. Orange two, we've agreed that if anyone's about orange two, that's the time to go, okay, what do you need? Oh, I need time out. Cool, we'll organise that in the next few hours or whatever. It's a soon thing. But if we get to orange three, it's like, okay, I am just about red. I'm just about red. I cannot give you any other warning than that. I'm just about red. 
Um, and then red is I'm too much. It's too. I need out now. I need downtime, or I'm I'm overloaded. I can't cope. You know, that's all red. But we also have black. Black is for that pit of despair that we have ended up in, where it's just I can't. I just it's it's too much. And having both of us had, we did have you know suicidal thoughts towards the end of hell year. I asked Rach what she would tell someone going through their own version of hell year. Oh, look, every phase has an ending. It may be years, but it always has an ending. And it's finding ways, it's kind of approach it like you're in a marathon rather than a sprint, which is what we came unstuck with because we thought, oh, any moment now, he's gonna, we're going to resolve it. We're going to change his diet and it's going to be magically fixed. That wasn't the case. When we started to look at it as a marathon and go, right, what can we put in place? Because this might be our life for the next year, two years, we don't know. What can we put in place for ourselves personally, for ourselves as a relationship? You know, what can we do that is almost like a survival plan? Like really lean on all the supports. Like I was not, a very, not very good at reaching out for support or getting help. I was a lone wolf, like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. Well, no, <laughs> God made sure it got to a point where I, I couldn't do it and I had to lean on my friends. I had to ask for support. I asked, had to ask for help. And most of all, just take each day as it comes. Like, even if you can take five minutes out at the beach or just stop and close your eyes and just take a few breaths, the more times you can stop and breathe, the easier it will be on your body, on your nervous system to get through. Rach and Carrie had to create their own survival plan. Like Suzanne, even before the situation got easier, naming their experiences helped them to adapt through the challenges. This was part of Mishka's journey also. You might remember that when we left off in her story, Mishka's mental and physical health were beginning to deteriorate, and her mom was beginning to decline also, experiencing extreme fatigue and burnout. And Mishka had to confront her role as the invisible glass child head-on so that she and her mother could begin identifying their needs and supporting each other in a healthy way. And told her, Mom, I don't want you to feel guilty about this. I just First, I did research because I thought that something's wrong with me, that I'm having these certain behaviors, that I'm overwhelmed, I am had emotional breakdowns in a way because I didn't know how to take care of my emotions. I didn't know... I was rejecting my emotions and pushing them down. No, you cannot feel this. You cannot feel resentment. You cannot feel sadness. You cannot feel uh, grief. You cannot feel these things. Like, you're not allowed to because it's not his fault. Yes, so what? I can feel those things. But first, I needed to do this research and talk to other siblings and be like, okay, this is why I feel this way. It's normal. In fact, many siblings around the world feel like this. Many siblings my age... So opening the conversation and having those conversations with siblings and realizing this is the cost. So I came to my mom and presented, this is the cost. I'm not blaming you. I'm not putting, I don't want you to feel guilty. Of course, I cannot control emotions, but I'm just saying that intention, like this is, I just need to have conversation with you to kind of share, for you to listen, to hold space for me, to share this with you. And I revealed those emotions and she was holding space for me. She was there and she was very grateful. She's like, I'm so grateful that you found this, that we can talk about this and that I can show my love to you in the way you need, um, that I can be there for you because you've been there for me my whole life. So, and yes, let's work on this. 
I glad I agree. It's not healthy to be sacrificing ourselves. What can we do? My mom is amazing, and this I'm so grateful that she's so open. We had conflicts when our needs were unmet, and we were trying and were clashing. But that's why I realized, okay, so the conflict comes from our unheard needs. When I need space, but you need attention or support, and then we're clashing. How can we solve this? How can I have one hour of space, two hours of space, and then we schedule? Actually, we schedule everything. If you saw us, we sit down, we schedule things. Because, so how can I fulfill your needs? How can you fulfill my needs? How can I fulfill my own needs in the way that I need space? It's been years of me working on that. I'm so grateful for Mishka, Suzanne, and Rach sharing these stories of burnout and how they coped and the answers that they found for themselves. Burnout looks different for each caregiver, not only because we're all unique, but because our caregiving situations bring out things in us that we don't see coming. Some people lose function, some compulsively overperform, some shut down. There are a million varieties. But no matter your style or situation, you eventually run out of gas. Everyone does. That's why all caregivers relate to burnout. You don't have to define it for them for them to know what you're talking about. We all need support from the outside, from each other, to find clarity and relief in the crush of caregiver burnout and to create our own survival plan. We've talked a lot in this series about the perfect storm of reasons why it can be so hard for caregivers to ask for help. And we revisited some of those today, the blind spot to our own unmet needs, perfectionism, and guilt that we're not doing enough or loving enough. For caregivers and for those listening who want to do more to help, I hope we'll all be able to remember that naming the feelings, checking in, taking your emotional temperature, pausing for a few moments to tune into what's going on in your nervous system, and giving a name to the experience will help. Even when it feels like you have no control over your circumstances, even when you don't have control over any of your circumstances, naming what you feel and how you're doing can help. It's the first step. And if you're a loved one, you can help create the shared language for these check-ins. You can hold the space for someone to talk and process the intense things they're feeling. And you can choose to make no assumptions about where someone is based on how it looks from the outside. We all need you to check in. Ask the hard questions. Caregivers need the support of those who are not caregivers themselves, who can take the bird's eye view of the situation and offer love and understanding, suggestions and relief. You who can see the caregiver and the situation uniquely, know what you can and should offer. And when you do, you give a lifeline to your caregiver so that those who they're caring for get even better care. And more than that, you remind them that they're not alone. I'm gonna repeat what I said at the beginning. If you're listening to this episode and thinking, oh, this is me, I am burning out, I hope you'll send this to your loved ones so that they have a clearer picture of what you're going through. I hope that they'll check in with you and be your support. However, no matter what happens or however many or few those support people may be in your life, you are not alone. Stop what you're doing, open up the directory on your phone and make a new contact for 988. This is the National Crisis Lifeline. You can text them, you can call, you can chat online. They exist to help people in crisis and connect them to resources. So if you find yourself experiencing panic, 
intrusive or suicidal thoughts, or if you just need someone to talk to in order to name what you're going through, they are ready, willing, and waiting. The number is 988. You can reach them however is most comfortable for you in English or Spanish. If you wake up at 4 a.m. and you can't bring yourself to dial any other number, call 988. I'm so grateful to the guests that we've had on this episode and the ones coming up for being so honest and open about these vulnerable experiences. Caregiver burnout is a deeply private and personal experience and even more sensitive for how unique it is for each person. Those who are willing to share make such an enormous difference by making it easier to realize that none of us are crazy and truly none of us are alone. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Stoneley and music and post-production by Trent Reimschusel. Suzanne White runs the Caregiver Warrior community and is also the author of a new book, Self-Care for Caregivers. Mishka Sieber is the founder of the International Happy Autism Organization and has also written a book, Mother's Guide to Siblings Relationships, Navigating the Sibling Relationship on a Journey with Autism. Tipa Snow leads her company, Positive Approach to Care, and hosts the Dementia Care Partner Talk Show podcast. Rach Wilson is a relationship coach specializing in parenting neurodiverse children with mentoring, workshops, and other resources which you can find on her website. Links to all of our guests, their websites, books, podcasts, and Instagrams will be up on our website and the episode page so you can check them out and follow their work. To connect with us about this episode, please join our listener community on Facebook. We'll be hosting additional conversations there with more opportunities to share and find resources. Music.